Welcome to 7-Minute Torah, everyone. I'm Rabbi Micah Streifer, recording on Wednesday, October 11th. This episode is the beginning of the fifth season of our podcast. I'm also recording only a few days after the horrific Hamas attacks on the area around Gaza that, as of today, seem to have killed more than a thousand people. And in the midst of an escalating crisis and a war, unlike anything Israel has seen in a generation. This is a time of great sadness, of great anger, of great fear. Now, coincidentally, I had scheduled an interview for today with Alden Solovey. Alden is a longtime friend of the podcast. He's a poet and a writer and a liturgist who lives in Jerusalem. And he and I went back and forth a few times over whether to hold this interview at all. I mean, what can we possibly say in this moment? Is it really appropriate to talk about the Torah portion and talk about poetry in the face of these horrific events? And in the end, Alden wanted to go forward with our interview. And I'm really glad he did. As you'll hear in a moment, our conversation is incredibly raw. We talk about Israel. We talk about Bereshit. We talk about words and poetry and the power that they have to bring us comfort. So here's my conversation with Alden Salavi. Alden is a liturgist and a poet. He lives in Jerusalem, and he is the author of the brand new volume called These Words, Poetic Midrash on the Language of Torah. Of course, we're talking about this week's Torah portion, Bereshit, which is Genesis chapter 1-1 through chapter 6, verse 8. One more thing. This interview is different from most of my other interviews in that we didn't just jump into the Torah portion. We really felt like we needed to talk about things that are going on. And as I said, the conversation is quite raw. If you just want to hear the Torah portion part, I recommend fast-forwarding to about the 10-minute mark of this podcast. That's where we segue from talking about Israel into talking about Bereshit. Of course, the topic comes back here and there throughout the podcast. Alden, thanks for joining me. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Now, I know you're joining from Jerusalem. How are you holding up these days? It's tough. I go from weepy to angry. We... um have sounds of war around us, even though Jerusalem is far from the action. There's planes overhead constantly, which are our fighter jets going out on sorties. We've had um, sirens in Jerusalem, which is remarkably rare. I think I've had in my 11 years here, up until these last three days, two air raid sirens. Now we've had close to 10. In the last three days, it's disorienting. It's a lack of sleep. It's anger. It's you know, I have friends who've lost relatives, children. I have friends whose children were um, in that party and um, were. It was hoped that they were. You know, they got out somehow, but they also perished. Um, I have. Easily 30 to 35 children, sons, daughters of, of friends who have been called up to the military. 
it it's uh it can't really be explained with words i mean it's the kind of thing that i think must touch everybody in in israel between people who have lost loved ones or who have children being called up. I mean, I have several friends. I'm I'm living across the world and I have several friends whose children are being called up right now. It's just what's the um what's the mood like around you? How are people how are people feeling? People are coming out of shock and going into anger. There is and will continue to be a tectonic shift in the psyche of the Israeli uh, people, mm. much like the Yom Kippur War, the um, idea that having a terrorist-run region right next door that lobs missiles over the border has been shifted to this is a dangerous enemy that can and will invade, mm. and you know an invasionary country is different than sort of a hostile neighbor who can be contained. The the result is going to be a, a complete shift in the way the politics of war and peace are talked about here. You know, no one, even, even people left-leaning like myself or solidly left, can, can tolerate living near someone who so blatantly wants to kill, maim, destroy, torture, torment, take captive uh, civilian population. Yeah, I mean, what's so horrific about this is the the toll on um, on, on civilians um, and, and in many ways the toll on the society. I was listening yesterday to the Hartman Institute podcast, Daniel Hartman and Yossi Klein-Halevi, and Yossi Klein Halevi said, I, I wrote down his words because I just found it so powerful that his mood, his general mood, he said, is the walls closing in, the floor dropping under my feet, the ceiling blowing open, total insecurity. And he said, radical disorientation. It just seems to me from afar that so much of what Israelis thought they knew maybe is 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 turning out to be different than what they thought they knew that there's just this sense of of disorientation this sense of having to find which end is up are you are you experiencing that right now yeah i think that's spot on and i am experiencing that and i'm experiencing it in my conversations with friends and seeing the faces of people on the street it it, it very much is a, a massive shift in the, the notion that we are a secure, safe, strong, capable, invincible, if you will, nation. Yeah, and I, I can tell you, as a diaspora Jew, I don't even know what to pray for right now. I'm so used to praying for peace, but looking at the situation, I just it feels so intractable to me. And again, I know you're not a political analyst, and I'm not asking for an answer this, to this question. I think I'm just I'm expressing something I'm feeling right now is that it feels so intractable that I don't even know where to start. You know, I want to I want to bring the Nechemta. I want to say we hope for peace. We pray for an end to hostilities. But the whole thing feels so far beyond comprehension. And that's that's where I'm sitting right now. And I'm not even in Israel, so I can't even imagine the um, the, the level of disorientation and the level of 
inability to comprehend that people must be experiencing there right now. Here in Israel, we are indeed praying for peace. We're praying for the success of our and safety of our soldiers. We're praying for the safe release of the hostages. We're praying for success in war. There's this dichotomy. I, I've told people that when I came to, to Israel, made Aliyah 11 years ago, what I've experienced is my, my feelings about peace, my politics of peace have moved further left, but my politics of safety and security have moved further right. And, and I have this dichotomous sense of my own, where I land politically. This uh, invasion has changed that as well. Well, and I imagine that a lot of that is the result of not feeling safe. It's easy to want peace when you can see the possibility of safety and security, but Israel is feeling very, very unsafe right now. It's not just feeling unsafe. It's seeing the photographs of the dead. It's seeing the horrific uh, images. The sense of safety is secondary to the sense of outrage at the brutality of this. This was brutal, vicious, and without real precedent in the history of of Israel. Yeah, I don't even know what to say, except that all of that is true. It's just, it's just horrific. So the idea before. Shabbat Simchat Torah, before the invasion, the idea was to talk Torah, and Torah is is a great way to um, perhaps bring peace in the world by learning a little Torah. Yeah, you said to me this morning, when we were deciding to eat, whether to even do this interview or not, you said to me that there's no better antidote to war than learning Torah together. And so well, I don't think we can solve the world's problems this way, but maybe we can bring a little comfort and and a little learning for ourselves in terms of bringing some context to um, the terrible things going on in the world right now. Um, Amen. So we're reading Bereshit and um, we're also, I'll just say now we're here to talk about your new book, which is called These Words, Poetic Midrash and the Language of Torah. Um, and your new book is a book of Midrash. Each of your poems is based on a single word of Torah. And I know we're going to get the chance to hear several of them. So as we read Bereshit this week, we are reading the story of creation. We're reading the story of God bringing order out of the chaos. Speaking of orientation and disorientation, this is Judaism's ultimate story of order and chaos. God creates the world by bringing order to chaos. God causes the unformed to become formed. And that, of course, ultimately culminates in the creation of human beings. So what does this bring up for you as you read this Parsha? What does it make you think about? Well, exactly as you said, this creation of order out of chaos, it also brings up the question of why does the creator create? And, and what does that mean for us, perhaps in relationship with the creator? It brings up the mystery and the wonder of, of the world as it is and that which we don't 
really know. I have a piece in the book it's for the word Bereshit uh, in the beginning, which is a fascinating word, word because it, it is Reshit with a bet in front of it. So it's, um, in a sense, the first fruit of God's creation. Reshit means beginning, first fruit, choices, part. So um, with a with a bet appended to it, Bereshit, it could also be a pun, and it could be in bringing or in creating the first fruits of this world. Do you want to read that piece for us, the Bereshit piece? I I will. That's, thank you for the uh, offer. It's called Evidence of Mysteries. Suppose God plays hide-and-seek among the stars, leaving evidence of holiness in the heavens, so that we might yearn to glimpse the moment when the divine desire to create burst forth into an explosion of awe and wonder. Suppose God plays hide-and-seek among the words of Torah, from the beginning of the beginning, leaving evidence of mysteries in the text, so we might yearn to glimpse deeper wonders of divine revelation bursting forth from the beginning of time. That's beautiful. Thank you. I'm, I'm yeah. so interested in this notion of God playing hide and seek. Where does that come from for you? Well, it comes from learning Torah. That comes from this, this idea that if we look, if we turn it over and turn it over, there will be more revealed in, uh, in each generation. And that is our obligation, turn it over and turn it over and look for what else Torah might be teaching. Yeah, the, the, the notion of God hiding, I think, has at least two different contexts in Jewish thought. When, when I read about God playing hide and seek, I think on the one hand about the idea like like you're saying, of God hiding in texts. You know, the rabbis really believe that the way that we hear God's voice is by reading and studying texts, striving to hear God's voice, so much so that the rabbis, you know, when, when a voice comes from heaven, the rabbis shout back at it and say, you know, this is not how we hear you anymore, God. We hear you hiding in, in the texts. But then at the other, on the other hand, the notion of God hiding has also been language that Jews have used over the years to describe tragic moments, to describe those times in life where, where we aren't exactly sure where God is. And so, you know, the idea of God playing hide and seek, you talk about mystery here, is to me brings up the resonance both of the finding and also the not finding, the, the moments of our lives where we're so sure that God is present in, you know, relationships or in texts or in learning or in communities. And also the moments of our lives where we just want to cry out because we're not sure God is present. Because of course, that is what a game of hide and seek is, right? Sometimes you're finding and sometimes you're not exactly finding. And it gets to the idea of what, what is the creator doing here? There's a, I believe it's a Hasidic story about God playing hide and seek. And, and essentially the, the upshot of the story is that God plays hide and seek so that we will seek. God wants us to yearn for God. And if God was 
so present we wouldn't learn, uh, pardon me, yearn for God. If God was so absent, we would not be able to ever reach God and we'd give up. So this this sort of in-between place of possibly being findable and possibly not being findable keeps uh, the, the mystery of the relationship alive. Hmm. And And maybe it also reflects our real experience in the world where sometimes we really do feel that we are in the presence of God and sometimes we really don't. I think we live in this world where God's presence is kind of in and out, right? Uh, the traditional Jews believe that there was a time when God's presence was much more concrete in the world. Before the temple was destroyed, before the exile began, you could experience God's presence in the world in a much more accessible way, and now you can't. As a liberal Jew, I don't think I believe that. I don't think I believe that the theological reality of the world has changed in the last 2,000 years, but I do understand the notion that God's presence is sometimes accessible and sometimes not. And so the the text that we write and the poetry that we write and the liturgy we write, I think is often a reaction to that dichotomous experience of sometimes being or sometimes feeling yourself in the presence of God and sometimes absolutely feeling the absence of God. Yeah, the theological implication of uh, of God being less present after the destruction of the temple, I, I, I struggled to deal with. At the same time, the metaphor that my actions, our actions, are, are the way we choose to interact with the divine can either bring the divine closer or push the divine further away. That bit I find important and perhaps a bit troubling. And, and yet I, I feel that in my life when my prayer life is, is spot on, more active, when I'm, I'm, I'm borrowing a phrase from 12-step, when I'm trying to increase my conscious contact with the God of my understanding, then I'm actually feeling closer to God, feeling a closer presence. And when I'm ignoring that relationship, in a sense, I'm pushing it away. So I think the metaphor Regardless of the theology, I think the metaphor is very useful in understanding how I might be in relationship with the divine. Yeah, and I think it speaks to, in a way, just how powerful we can be. I mean, there are moments where we feel incredibly powerless. And so that's when we have to look for the power that we do have in the world. And that is often the power, as as you're describing it, the power to bring God closer, which I think is also the power to connect with others, the power to uh, support other people, the power to knit together the fabric of relationships, the power, you know, the Torah says in last week's Torah portion, talks about chazak ve'ematz, talks about being strong and resolute. And I think the power we have often is the, um, the power to bring God into what feels like an empty world, which God knows, sorry for the pun, is not always easy to do. But maybe that is exactly the 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 capacity that we that we do have, that Judaism wants us to know that we do have. I, I I'm struck also by the the question of where does that leave us in relationship with God? And this, the the I have a, a piece in the in the book 
it's the only two word phrase that I I explore. The re- every other every other entry in the book is one word. This is tohu vavohu, uh, chaos unformed. I believe it's the second pasuk, the second uh, verse in Breishit, where we're told that there there's this astonishingly empty, without form, and empty. Another way to to um, to find Tohovavo, chaos unformed, this 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 amorphous, unformed, yet completely full of all potential pre-creation state. And I want to read the, the piece for it because it gets to sort of this idea of why does the creator create and what might our our relationship be, if you don't mind. Yeah, I was thinking of the same piece, actually. So you and I are clearly on the same page. Go for it. Please do read the piece. It's called At the Edge of the Deep. In a dream, God took me to the swamp, the formless deep roiling with anticipation and desire from which divine yearning created us all. Everything held in nothingness, light confined in darkness, life calling out in song, souls calling out in prayer, seeds of beauty and terror, seeds of history and eternity. God asked me, shall we make human in our own image? Confused, I replied, you've already made me. Oh, dear one, God said, before I created you, you called out to me from the deep. You yearned for me. You courted me, and I fell in love. Wow. It's so beautiful. First of all, the way you use words is so beautiful, which I suppose is why you're a poet. (laughs) Thank you. Um, You've you've quoted or paraphrased at least three different midrashim here. The the image of the tohu vavohu, the image of the deep, being just filled with potential, um, the language of souls calling out in prayer, seeds of beauty and terror, seeds of history and eternity. It's so, it so echoes, I think, the idea of creation as full of potential. Um, and, and I'm struck actually by the line where you wrote seeds of beauty and terror, because of course that that midrash where God asks the angels, shall we create human beings? And the angels go on to debate and discuss. And, you know, and, and what the angels really are doing is they're saying, you know, this world is going to contain beauty and it's going to contain terror. It's going to have all kinds of beautiful and great things in it. And it's going to have all kinds of terrible things in it. And the question that's being asked there in many ways is the question of, is it worth it? Is a world filled with suffering worth creating if it's also going to be a world filled with beauty and goodness and judaism's answer is that it is right because in the midrash god goes and creates humanity and comes back and says that the deed is done and you're kind of playing on that on that image here when you have god say before i created you you called out from me you called out to me from the deep what made you write this poem? What drove you to put these words down? Well, I wish I knew. <laughs> I um, this the, the the process of writing this book was a, a different kind of journey for me, be, because the way the book is structured is the left hand page has a, a 
a discussion of the word itself, all sorts of things from how it's used in Torah to the, the, the root, the Shoresh, to um, what the commentators have to say about it from the early commentators all the way up to, depending on the word, the commentators today. And then on the right-hand page, it has a, a poem. So in writing this book, I was going from left brain to right brain, from left brain to right brain, um, and ideas would just flourish and and I would go with it. So I, I cannot tell you how I got to any particular idea. It was it, it was six months of a Torah trance, if you will. I would wake up at six in the morning with an idea. I'd go right to the computer. I'd have four or five screens of Safaria, one text website open, and um, some from Machon Mamre, and, and um, uh, some from uh, Al HaTorah, and I'd have Humashim around me, and I and and lo and behold, it'd be noon, one o'clock, and I was still in my pajamas, still at the computer, hadn't eaten, hadn't brushed my teeth, sorry to say, um, and and this went on for for months. So I I I can't necessarily answer for any particular poem how uh, I got to that particular that particular idea in the poem. It it sounds almost like divine inspiration, what you're describing. Look, we we liberal Jews, we don't tend to like to say, you know, you know, God told me to do this. That just that's kind of creepy for for most liberal Jews. But I, I will say that I believe my writing is a gift from God. And when God is done with me, this gift will dry up just as randomly as it appeared 14 years ago when you know I was writing healthcare books on healthcare economics. Every poem I write still is a surprise to me. Well, so let's talk about the the project a little more um, a little more broadly. You're calling this poetic midrash on the language of Torah. So, first of all, tell us how how are you defining midrash here? Yeah, I'm using a very modern liberal definition of midrash. Now, some could argue that midrash is a particular form with rules and and um history and and there can be no midrash after the 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 early commentators wrote their 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 interpretations and 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 i i'm just not following that general logic i'm talking about midrash as the broader interpretation of torah based on learning instinct understanding our modern situation I, I i do believe deeply that that midrash should be rooted in learning mm -hmm. that said i don't think it needs to be constrained in any way poems can be midrash dance can be midrash uh, art can be midrash yeah in fact if I can use this opportunity to put in a plug for a class that we have coming up at La Silk in a few weeks, Rabbi Leah Berkowitz 
is going to be teaching a class on creative midrash, actually classical, contemporary, and creative midrash. And the idea being that we study midrashim and then we create our own. And I know that the definition she's using as well is quite broad. You can create midrash in words. You can create midrash in through art. You can create midrash in a whole um, series of, of media. And I think, I don't know if the ancient rabbis imagined um, artistic midrash, but they certainly imagined poetic midrash because they were writing poet, poetic midrash as well. And I also think that the ancient rabbis did not imagine that midrash would end in the fifth century. Right? I think they thought they were doing something ongoing and that people would continue to do what they were doing. If I can just read a little piece from your introduction here, this is on page XXI. So I guess that's 21 of the introduction. You write, we are a people of stories. We tell them, then we tell stories about them. Then we tell stories about the stories of the stories. We call that Midrash. And that to me is what Jews have been doing since time immemorial. In fact, in many ways, the Torah are the stories that we tell about the stories. If we imagine that the Torah was also the product of traditions and stories that were being passed down, then we're really, we're writing stories on top of stories on top of stories on top of stories, because that is how Jews make, make meaning of the world. It's how we make sense of the world by understanding what's been passed down to us and, and, um, and what kind of, and what it's supposed to mean to, to us. So I appreciate that expansive definition of Midrash and that understanding that Midrash is not only something we read that was created by a group of people a long time ago, but also a, a verb in a sense, right? We are continuing to create Midrash. We're continuing to draw new meaning out of these, out of these texts. Um, your book here of Midrash is a specific kind, which is to say you've taken individual words and you've spun poems around them. Why words? What made you decide to do it that way? Curiosity about words, love of words. Uh, also, it's something that hadn't been done. And, you know, words are the basic unit of, of communication. And there's so much packed into so many of these words, so much insight, understanding. So the, the, the research that I did was a, a great uh, gift to me in terms of Torah learning. Yes, I can see how it would be. I mean, the thing about Hebrew and especially biblical Hebrew is that every word has layers upon layers of meaning. Um, and you read for us your piece on Bereshit. You read for us your piece on Tohu Vavohu, the, the chaos or the unformed. Um, and just, just, just looking my way through the table of contents here, I see pieces on Afar or Dust on Adam or human, lech or go. You know, so this is not organized by Torah portions per se, um, but you've chosen words that come up in Torah and that have just layers upon layers of meaning. D is there another favorite piece that you'd like to read for us? I will say that this book is um, chock full of, of pieces that I, I truly love. Um, you know, I happened to open to 
So we are on the same wavelength. The 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 piece you just mentioned, dust. I, I would say from a that that's a good one to read because that's the the Torah portion we're on. I I will say I truly love also the piece for Rakia, which is in our Torah portion. I the piece for Sohar, which is going to come up in Parashat Noach, is one that totally surprised me when I wrote it. But if we're going to stick with Bray Sheet, maybe let's go with Afar. Okay. This is Afar or Dust. And the poem is actually called Dust. God made Adam from sawdust and stardust and fairy dust, dust from the four corners of the earth, dust from the four corners of the sky, angel dust, moon dust, dust from where the rainbow ends, dust from Eden and dust from the world to come, dust that sparkles and shines, dust from the land where a bush still burns, waiting for you to return to God's holy mountain. Thank you. It, again, it's so beautiful. It seems to me that dust here represents being part of many different things. Sawdust, stardust, berry dust, you know, dust from all these places. It seems is that the resonance then? Am I hearing it correctly that, you know, dust means that we are made from and maybe even still present in all these different moments and experiences in the universe? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and and the context of Afar is really interesting because uh, the, the Pasuk says Afar mean ha'adama. And Afar is a masculine noun. Adama is a female noun. So we have dust from the ground that is male and female. Um, and and uh, Rabbeinu Bahia noting that, the, pardon me, it was Ibn Ezra, noting that the human body contains all four elements, earth, air, fire, and water, holds that the dust was specifically used to make the bones of the first human. Now that's Midrash. Uh, and there's another Midrash that actually explains that the reason why God took the dust from the four corners of the earth so that whenever, wherever Adam might die, the earth would accept Adam's body. So between these two previous uh, Midrashim, the idea of what is this dust and where does it come from uh, animated this particular poem. And it couldn't, it, it had to be magical dust and common dust and dust from from everywhere in my mind but then lead us to the place we need to go god's holy mountain i can see how the process of creating even a what is this 12 line poem could involve so much research and learning and so much digging into the meanings and the resonances of of the text um and i can see also how this could be an amazing study guide, you know, I, even to, to look at these two pages on the right hand, there's a poem on the left hand. You've given us this information about the, the, the about the language and the, the meaning of this one word and um, that there's so much to talk about there. There's so much learning to be done as we dig into the meaning of each individual word. I, I appreciate that. And I do hope that the book is used uh, both in in creating uh, 
more midrashim, creating sermons that rabbis will look to this book, but also in, in Torah study and teaching and sharing the excitement of Torah with uh, congregations, with uh, interfaith, with uh, converts. Because my hope is, my belief is this book does uh, capture the excitement of the language of Torah. Mm -hmm. and, and that bit, I think, is something that uh, I haven't seen in, in most of the books that I've read. And I looked through a lot of books about uh, the language of you know biblical Hebrew and the language of Hebrew in particular. But this idea of, of the excitement of the language and where it can take us is, uh, I think, pretty present in this book. Yeah. Well, and the other thing I'll say about that as a North American Jew is, you know, so many North American Jews don't understand Hebrew. Um, it's different for Israelis, right? Obviously, you're an American Israeli, and so you're living in a Hebrew-speaking society. Um, I'm living in a largely English-speaking society, and there's so much goodness to studying the Torah in translation, which is largely how we do it, but then there's so much that's missed. There's so much that's lost in the original meaning. And so I, I wonder then if um, this kind of work can be an entree for English-speaking Jews into gaining a sense of the layers of meaning within the Hebrew text, because there's just so much there. I hope so. I hope so. Can I read for you a piece that spoke to me from your book? Please. So this is your piece on Devarim, or words. And it's interesting because, of course, this book is all about words. You've picked a word and then spun a midrash about it. But the name of this poem is No Words. And I think it spoke to me because in the wake of watching the, the horrific events that are going on in Israel the last couple of days, I haven't known what to say. And, um, and, and your poem, well, I'll read it now, but your poem kind of made that okay for me. So I'll, I'm going to read your own work for you. Thank you. It's called No Words. Today, I have no words for you, God. None. Yesterday, the day before, and the day before that, I had words. So many words. Thousands of words to share with you. Perhaps tomorrow there will be more. Today, I have no words for you, God, none. Be with me in my breathing, in the quiet that fills the space between us. Be with me. Give me the words I need to hear. Give me the words I need to say. Today, I have no words for you, God. Do you have words for me? So I just want to thank you for giving me some words in a moment where I had none, and also for telling me that it's okay for there to be moments where we have no words. You know, I think I, maybe all of us do, but I, I know that I live in a world where I think that I always have to have something to say. Maybe it's because I'm a rabbi, right? We're just trained to talk mm. a lot. Um, right. But also the world of social media, you know, something happens, you got to post about it. Something happens, you got to comment on it. But I just have found myself speechless over the last couple of days. And and I um when I read your poem, that it made me feel okay about that. It made me feel that there are moments in life when we don't always know what to say and that that could be okay. So thank you. Thank you for this. 
That's really nice to hear. Thanks. Thanks for sharing that. Um, so as we come to an end, I, I just want to wish you, Chazak Van Matz, I want to wish you strength during these challenging times. And um, I, I guess, you know, to bring it back to where we started, for those of us in diaspora, what can we be doing to help? What can we be doing to, to support right now those who are going through this incredible crisis in Israel? Yeah, thanks for that. Reach out to the people you know here uh, with support. Be patient with responses. We are getting a lot of uh, great feedback and and connections, but reach out. It it makes a world of difference. Whether you're sending a message or posting on Facebook, that's remarkably helpful. Understand that uh, at some point, the, the world news, which seems to be in our favor at the moment, is likely to shift because this will be a very aggressive um, response. And so stay steadfast in your support of Israel and your understanding that this this was a violent invasion that, that needs a strong response. So stay resolute. Donate where you can. Support each other. Go to synagogue. Be together. Pray for the success of, of the the this endeavor with as minimal minimal casualties as possible. So pray for the the soldiers, pray for the captives, pray for the state of Israel, pray for each other. I think that's it. Thank you, Alden. I, I want to thank you for spending some time with me for bringing a little bit of of beauty, a little bit of, dare I say, hope into what feels like a dark world right now. And for your for your beautiful words of poetry that have such a such a capacity to to bring us goodness. Thank you, Chazak Vemlatz. We wish you strength and um, and really appreciate you spending some time with me today. Thank you, my friend. Thanks again to Alden Salovey for taking some time to meet with me during this very difficult moment in Israel's history. If you're looking for ways to support or donate during this time, there are a lot of good places to give. I recommend checking out New Israel Fund, NIF.org. And like Alden said, it is a time to reach out. Nearly everyone in Israel is being affected by this in one way or another. They appreciate hearing from us. They appreciate our support and they appreciate our connection. I'm praying for peace, praying for security, holding in my heart all those who have been hurt, who have been injured, who have been killed, and who are being held captive during this horrid series of events. Praying for minimal additional casualties as this goes forward, and praying that there may be a time when there can be peace and security for all the inhabitants of the land. Thanks for being with me, and I'll see you next week. 7-Minute Torah is a production of La Asok, Sacred Texts, Modern Meaning. If you enjoy this program, please consider becoming a sponsor at patreon.com slash 7-Minute Torah. For more information about upcoming learning opportunities, go to laasoka.org, L-A-A-S-O-K dot I'm Rabbi Micah Streifer. Thanks for listening.